0: Hello, I am Kevin Smith, and you have found The Terminator Training Show, your one-stop shop for no BS training, nutrition, and health information. For more, please go to terminatortraining.com. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy the show. Yo, what's up? Welcome to another episode of The Terminator Training Show. I'm Kevin Smith with a Q&A episode today. If you want your questions answered on one of these episodes, give me a follow if you don't already on Terminator underscore training on Instagram. Once a week, I do a QA. If your question is good, today I've gone through my questions from this week and circled the ones that are the most appropriate to answer the best questions that I got from this week. So if you have a good question, I try to get to all of them on Instagram. However, I have not been getting to quite all of them recently just because I've been getting a ton of them. And just because I haven't got to your question does not mean it's not a good question and vice versa, just because I've answered your question does not mean it's an awesome question. However, just sometimes I just answer them as I see them. So some of them get a little bit lost in the sauce. I think I've got a couple today that I'm gonna answer, maybe one or two that I didn't answer on Instagram. But either way, if you want your question answered, just continue asking it and I will eventually get to it. But if you want it to be answered on the show, make sure it's a good one and I will give it some more depth and detail as I go through these questions on the show. I am planning on putting my previous two episodes as well as this episode on YouTube. So if you guys want to watch the super awesome set production of my webcam slash my little shelf in the background of my video, I've got a hourglass and like a paper holder. And if I move over here a little bit, I got a little snowflake. My wife figured I needed to spice up my background before we went on YouTube. So she set up the, the little background fun. So that's exciting. Uh, those will probably be on YouTube this weekend. And in the future, I plan on putting all my shows on YouTube, at least the vast majority of them. Just so if you guys prefer watching, you definitely can. But yeah, that's really all I got. We're going to hop into today's questions. So, first question today is training for SFAS lifts are bench 335, deadlift 545, squat 435. Five miles, 38 minutes. Should I focus on the run? Yeah. So, I jokingly answered this question on my story, saying that no, you should definitely focus mostly on the power lifts that you mentioned, which you already have very good power lifting numbers, not for a power lifter, but just general strength. That's pretty good, but that is not the case. You don't need to be very, very strong at squat bench deadlift to be successful at selection. You do have to be strong. So don't completely ignore your strength, but you can lose a hundred pounds on each of those lifts, especially if you traded some of that strength for endurance and ability to run. Not sure what your ruck looks like, but typically depending on the person, usually if you're a decent runner and you're strong like that, Usually rucking comes pretty easy, but I would certainly focus on getting your five mile time down and probably your two mile time and just your overall endurance. And I would focus on uh, a lot of rucking again. You don't have to quit lifting. You don't have to try and lose strength. You shouldn't try and lose strength, but you should kind of mentally get to the point where you can accept a little bit of temporary strength loss in an effort to bring your run times up and get yourself ready for the, physical requirements that you'll see at selection, of which powerlifting is not one of them. Once you're done with selection, you can get back in the gym. It's not going anywhere. Typically, if you were strong beforehand and you achieve that strength naturally, of course, it comes back very, very quickly. So coming back after selection, you can get back in the gym. You can regain that strength. Again, you don't even have to be that strong in those particular lifts. You don't even have to do those particular lifts. You can do variations of them. I Personally, when I first started my career, I was big into squat bench dead. My squat and deadlift were pretty good. My bench press has always been pretty substandard. But towards the end of my career, I started to realize that those lifts were not really serving me anymore. They were more of an ego thing. Basically, patting my ego by squatting a lot, deadlifting a lot especially. And I was kind of ignoring the signs that my body was giving me that perhaps there was a better option like squat variations and deadlift slash hinge variations, and definitely pressing variations. Bench press definitely seemed to bother my shoulder quite a bit, so just some things to focus on, just some things to consider, but it's okay to sacrifice a little bit of strength and put that kinda on the side burner for a little while and focus mostly on your endurance and you'll be in a much better position to get selected. Next question, I'm going to selection soon, can you give me a few tips on how to keep my feet good during rucking? Foot care, yes. So I'll start by saying I am not necessarily a go-to subject matter expert on blister treatment, mostly because I don't have a history of many blisters at all. In my entire selection career, I got one blister on my heel and it was on the very last day, the last movement of SMU selection. I had to use different boots because the night prior to that, I left my boots that I had been using the entire time by the fire, and the entire soles burnt off. So that was a bonehead move on my part, but I had to use my backup boots, which were broken in before I went, but I wore the same Nikes the entire time. Until that last day, and for whatever reason, I got a blister on one heel and not the other one. I think my feet are a little bit misshapen. I believe it was my right heel. So it was the last day, so I didn't really have to like manage it and continue because I just had to finish that and I was done. However, the best ways to make it so that you have is as little chance as possible of getting blisters, that is very doable. There is a little bit of a genetic component. Some people just have tougher skin. Some people have less tendency to develop blisters. That being said, you can definitely improve the toughness of your skin. And the best way to do that is to just spend a lot of time rucking, walking, running in the footwear that you plan on wearing at selection. You don't need to get this perfect pair of boots. You don't need to get this perfect pair of running sneakers. You don't need to get the most high-tech socks in the world. What you do need to do is decide on some and spend the requisite time, breaking them in and getting your your feet broken in as well. And breaking your feet in typically just means developing calluses on the areas where typically blisters occur. So the heels, the bottom of your feet, the sides of your feet, wherever you may be prone to blisters. If you develop calluses there, that skin becomes a lot tougher, of course. One thing that you you should definitely consider is when you do develop calluses, you don't want to just let them continue to get thicker and thicker and thicker because you can develop like a really thick calluses And what can happen is underneath those calluses, you can get blisters and that's just a whole fiasco that you don't want to deal with. So toughening up your feet by wearing your boots a lot, rucking a lot, doing a proper train up, getting your feet used to the friction that you're going to feel inside your boots, getting your feet used to the different spots where the boots are going to rub against your feet. That is probably the most important thing. You can also consider intentionally getting your boots wet before you go do some of your training sessions just so you have wet boots anyway and you get used to rucking in wet boots there will be times where it makes sense for you to change your boots after they get super soaked or deal with your feet after they get super soaked but it's usually not going to be immediately afterwards because if you go through something that's wet a draw, something like that during land nav, for example you get super wet boots and you immediately go and change your socks and your boots to your dry ones there's a very good chance that they're gonna get wet again. So changing them and then having to change back into your wet boots or even worse, even dumber, walking through water again with your dry boots is that way you have two wet boots now, two pairs of wet boots, not a very good idea. So you're gonna wanna get a little bit used to walking with wet boots and you can walk all day with wet boots and wet feet and still not get blisters. It just requires you to do it a lot and do it often. When you're not training, while, like once training is over, you wanna get your boots off, you wanna get your socks off, you wanna air your feet out, you want to start drying your boots, of course, for the next day, because in most cases, it makes the most sense to put your wet boots back on. You can change out the insoles or whatever. There's, I believe, an unlimited amount of insoles that you can bring to selection. I didn't bring any insoles, I just wore the same insoles all the time. I never thought of this stuff. But you can do that if you want. But when your boots are off and when the day is over, you want to really take care of your feet. Keep them very clean. Keep your nails trimmed. Keep them dry, of course. Uh, wear your flip flops or your crocs around. Sleep without socks on. You know, let them air out. Let them be clean. Let them be dry. And just take really good care of them. When you get hot spots that are coming up, hot spot is like what happens right before you get a blister. You can kind of feel it. And if you let the hotspot go without managing it for a while, it typically turns into a blister. That's when you really want to dial in your foot care procedures. But once blisters already occur, you're kind of already behind the power curve. Yes, you can definitely manage them. Yes, you can pass selection if you have blisters. You can use things like moleskin. You can use things like um, tincture. Benzoin is another good one. If they allow this, there's some... Really good there's there's a really good foot ointment. It's also an anti-chafage ointment that is called two Tom Sport. It's kind of this like clear ointment. You can't even tell that you're rubbing it on. It just goes on perfectly clear. And you can use it in the places that you chafe. You can also rub your feet, you can rub it all over your feet and that will make your feet super tough. I wouldn't use that too much in training unless you just have like very problematic feet and like you need to get a session in. And if you don't take care of your feet, you're you're just not gonna be able to train, which Just indicates that you're probably not approaching it properly. But if they allow that at selection, you can definitely consider using that for some of the longer days and just kind of artificially keeping your feet more resilient to blisters. But it really just comes down to personal responsibility, taking care of your feet when you can, changing socks when appropriate, changing boots when appropriate, not changing boots too often, and staying ahead of it. And you should be good to go. Next question, thoughts on barefoot minimalist style training shoes, pros and cons. Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of barefoot shoes, primarily because most shoes, typical shoes that are not barefoot shoes, don't really allow your feet to function the way that they're supposed to. The human foot is supposed to function kind of similarly to a hand, and the way that we wear shoes these days, or the shoes that most companies create these days, is almost a little bit like putting your feet in a mitten all day. If you put your hands in a mitten all day, just every time you go anywhere, if your hands were in a mitten, you would lose some strength, you would lose some dexterity, you'd lose some toughness in your hands. They'd just always be, your fingers would be together, kind of squished together, and you wouldn't really be able to use them properly. Kind of the same thing occurs when you are putting your feet in typical Nikes or Under Armour or Noble, whatever you may be wearing. The Toe box is not very wide, so your feet don't get to splay. They also typically most shoes are thick sold, thicker soled. And so you don't get to, you don't get the tactile feeling of actually stepping on the ground on the different surfaces that you may walk across or run across on the ground. So your feet get a little bit weaker and they also get a little bit less resilient and less tough. You know if a kid for example if a kid grows up going barefoot most of the time he's gonna have really tough feet he's gonna have really strong feet his feet are probably not gonna be super bunched up he's probably not gonna get bunions etc whereas if someone wears very tight shoes that kind of scrunch their feet up and they're really padded and there's a drop from the heel to the toe typically they end up with foot problems and when you have feet problems when you have weak feet or feet that don't function the way they should it kind of works its way all the way up the chain. Sometimes you'll have knee problems because your feet are weak or imbalanced or less functional. Sometimes you'll have hip problems, lower back problems, etc. So your feet are kind of like the beginning of your kinetic chain all the way up your body. And if you are kind of neglecting that and just wearing the most comfy, most padded, most cool looking shoes all the time instead of barefoot shoes or instead of some sort of minimalist shoes or if you never go walk around barefoot you know within reason of course like if it's a safe environment to walk around barefoot you're not going to slash your feet all up your feet are going to be a little bit behind the power curve that being said one of the main cons of barefoot shoes besides the fact that most of them are kind of ugly although they are there are some new brands i've got a bunch of vivos and vivos look pretty good but One of the major cons is that people will go from what they're currently doing in their standard shoes that they've been wearing for years and years and years, and then just switch completely to barefoot shoes. So when you do that, you are opening yourself up to acute or kind of over time developing injuries because you're just not used to all that stuff. It would be like always having mittens on for your entire life and then expecting your hands to have calluses and be super strong, have a really good grip, be really tough and resilient. It just doesn't work that way. So you have to like slowly introduce the barefoot shoes. You know, for example, if you're walking 12 to 15,000 steps a day and you just switch completely over to barefoot shoes, like all in one week, and you do all of your walks now in barefoot shoes, you're probably going to potentially hurt yourself. Even worse, if you are running and you switch to running in barefoot shoes, you're probably going to hurt yourself unless you really, really slowly introduce them. I typically recommend starting with like when you go to the gym, your lower body lifting sessions on a kind of a side note, if you are lifting lower body in running shoes, you are already doing yourself a disservice. Those are very unstable and not great shoes to lift in for performance, for injury prevention, for lots of different things. So definitely wear at least a flat bottom shoe. Doesn't necessarily have to be a minimalist shoe when you're lifting. That way you are getting a really good contact with the ground and you are stable for your lower body lifts. If you watch someone a video, a lot of my clients when they first started work, first start working with me, they send me their first lower body assessment videos and they're wearing running shoes and you can just see in the video that there is no stability. Like the foam, the padding on the bottom of the shoe just makes it kind of all over the place. and. It's just not great for maximizing your lower the ability to put for it's kind of like doing squats on a little bit of a bosu ball. Not quite that to that extent, but sort of similar in regards to stability. So tangent over, but when you are switching over to your barefoot shoes or your minimalist shoes, I typically recommend starting by wearing to them to the gym, maybe wearing them on a few walks or half your walk or something like that throughout the day. If you want to start running in them. You can, however, if you're trying to maximize your running performance, I wouldn't necessarily run, at least not like your your speed runs or anything like that in barefoot shoes. If they were better for running performance, more people would wear them, more high level runners would wear them. And you're you might as well wear a super shoe if you're going to if you're really looking to maximize your running performance. If you're using running for fitness and you want to improve the basically the entirety of your kinetic chain and you want to get your feet tougher and you want to improve your running form it basically barefoot shoes force you to improve your running form or else you're going to get hurt Um, that can be fine and it can be fine to wear them occasionally when i do it so basically i wear my barefoot shoes all the time other than when i am going for any sort of long run or any sort of run on the road or doing any sort of speed work or anything. But basically the only time I wear barefoot shoes while doing conditioning is longer rucks. So I'll ruck in my, they're not full barefoot shoes, but they're vivos, they're minimalist shoes. They're a little bit more durable and thick than like the other vivos that I have, the trainers that I have. So I'll ruck in those, and then anytime I run only on trails or only on sand, I will some slow, I will sometimes wear my barefoot shoes. But basically, you just want to really start small and slowly introduce the barefoot shoes into your life. And again, you don't have to completely only wear those. It's okay to sometimes wear other shoes. But if you are looking to improve the toughness, strength, functionality of your feet, and potentially reduce your risk of other types of injuries, soft tissue injuries, especially in the lower body, then barefoot shoes can be great. So long as you appropriately switch over and don't just go all at once. Next question, is there any difference for training for the 75th versus SFAS or is it basically the same? So 75th is 75th Ranger Regiment and SFAS, obviously Special Forces Assessment Selection. Two different units, two different selections. So RASP would be Ranger Assessment and Selection program, I believe would be what you go to, to go to Ranger regiment. And yes, there is a little bit of a difference in regards to preparation. They both are going to involve rucking, running calisthenics, general full body strength. If you're going to SFAS, you want to emphasize a little bit more, probably a little bit more rucking because you're just going to do, you're going to spend more time at SFAS with a ruck on. And I believe I haven't been to RASP, but many people have told me that there's more running that takes place throughout RASP. The, the entirety of RASP, which I believe is eight weeks long or maybe six weeks long. So you probably want to emphasize a little bit more running, a little bit less rucking, but you still do want to ruck. And I believe most of the rucks at RASP are, I think there's like a six miler, an eight miler, a 10 miler, and a 12 miler or something like that. So that's quite a bit of rucking, but it's done over a longer period of time, whereas selection just sfas during the first week you have to do all of your speed rucks and speed runs but after that you're just going to be wearing a ruck constantly doing land nav and team week so another thing you want to consider if you're going to sfas is prepping for land nav i don't believe rasp has much land nav i could be wrong but i also know you get smoked more at rasp than you do at sfas just basically made to do pt out of punishment or discipline or retraining whatever it may be so You don't necessarily need to like practice getting smoked. You kind of just cross that bridge when you get there, but it's something to expect. So there are some slight differences, obviously in duration and what you're going to be expected to to do there. But most programs for SFAS probably would work decently well for RASP. You could probably make some changes. Like for example, if you were following my SFAS program, I don't have a RASP program, but if you were going to RASP and following that, I would definitely add some more running in and... The rucking is probably pretty good. The calisthenics and strength is pretty good. So yeah, the main difference would be running. But aside from that, like very similar. If you are super fit to smash SFAS, you're probably super fit to smash RASP and vice versa. Next question, how to improve walking pace on rucks? I'm averaging about a 16 minute mile walking pace. Yeah, so 16 minute miles is not that bad, but you definitely could get faster. Unfortunately, there's no real magic formula to this. It's just spending more time getting better at rucking and walking fast with a ruck on it's a very uncomfortable thing it's something that not a lot of people focus on most people focus on running with a ruck on and walking slow with a heavier ruck on they don't do a lot of walking fast with a moderate weight ruck and if you're prepping for SFAS, i think that that is a very important thing to include in your program mainly because the faster you're i the faster you're able to walk at a certain pace with a ruck on the faster you can walk when you are out preserving energy. So if you can walk 1330 miles, for example, if you're going as hard as possible, are you going to have to do that while you're at selection? Not necessarily, but when you're out doing land nav or you are trying to get things done in a certain amount of time and you're capable of walking a 1330 mile, but because selections really long and you don't want to go balls to the wall the entire time other than like during the gates, During land nav, you kind of want to preserve a little bit of energy just so you can continue the remainder of selection, the remainder of land nav, et cetera. You can walk slower and preserve energy, but you're still going to be walking a 17-minute mile pace, 18-minute mile pace. Whereas if your fastest maximum walking pace with a ruck on, with a, say, 50-pound ruck on is 1630, when you're also doing that preserving energy pace, you're probably going to be 21, 22, 23-minute pace. So those minutes add up, those minutes per mile add up over time. The faster you can get things done, the faster you can move in a way that is not just completely smashing yourself or making it so that you can't recover or continue to perform, the better off you're going to be. So practicing walking fast is very important. And the best way to do it is to do, more often, do it more often and get fitter and improve your ability to walk with a ruck on. Just kind of like any fitness discipline, progressive overload, working on walking faster every time you do it. You know, that's the the main thing. Over time, you're going to get faster and faster. A lot of my clients, when they start working with me, I can think of one who is actually going to this next selection class. I think he leaves tomorrow. When he first started working with me, he was walking like 17, 30 miles at maximum walking pace with a 50-pound ruck. And now he's walking 1430 miles with a 55-pound ruck. So he was super frustrated at first. He was like, this is the least comfortable thing ever. But the more you do it, the faster you get the less uncomfortable it gets. Rucking's never gonna be comfortable, but you can make it less uncomfortable by just continuing to do it. Next question, how many sets on average per muscle group per week? I'm gonna assume he's talking about uh, hypertrophy because it depends on what your goal is, but I'm gonna talk about this in a hypertrophy or muscle gain sense. Most studies show that anywhere between 12 to 20 hard sets per muscle group per week is the gold standard for gains. It's a pretty big range and The, in fact, the range is even bigger than that. It really depends mostly on a few things, your level of development slash, you know, whether you're advanced or intermediate or beginner, it also depends on how hard you train, how hard you're capable of training with good form. That is not going to break down when you're getting close to failure. As a general rule, the more sets per week per muscle group that you are doing the more reps in reserve you should consider leaving for each set. The fewer sets per week that you're going to be doing per muscle group, the harder you have to train, the closer to failure you have to train. So plenty of guys, especially advanced trainees that have been doing it for a really, really long time and are super strong and can really, really train hard and push super close to failure with like immaculate form all the way till they hit failure or a rep in the tank or something like that they can get away with very, very few sets. They could probably make pretty solid gains on six to eight sets per week if they're going really hard. That being said, advanced trainees also can opt to do a lot more sets and leave a little bit more in the tank. So that one kind of comes down to personal preference. However, in my experience, when I am working with more advanced trainees and I do this myself as well, I often lean towards the side of lower volume and higher intensity intensity in this case is just going to be proximity to failure. So less than a rep in in the tank, maybe less than two reps in the tank. Typically one, sometimes all the way to failure, sometimes even beyond failure or using intensity techniques. If you're somewhere in the middle, if you're a beginner, you can definitely make gains on very, very, very little volume. You could do three to five sets a week and make great gains as a beginner. However, And most people will kind of leave it at that. However, that leaves a big, very important consideration out. When you're a beginner and you want to lift for a really long time and make it a lifelong habit or thing that you do for years and years and decades and decades, it's very important to develop great lifting skill. There is a skill component to lifting, and it's very, very important. Doing the basic movement patterns with very good skill and very good form and feeling what it feels like to push sets hard, feeling what it feels like to do frequent squats, bench presses, deadlifts, whatever it may be, is super important for beginners. So if, although you could gain muscle as a beginner on very few sets, that doesn't mean you should. Just because you can, doesn't mean you should. It's a much better approach, in my opinion, to do more sets per week as a beginner. And then as you become more intermediate, as you get out of that beginner phase, That's when you kind of ramp up the volume even more because still as an intermediate, definitely as a beginner, but also as an intermediate, you're going to need to be a little, and the next question, I'll I'll kind of answer that as part of this question. The next question is what constitutes a uh, intermediate lifter? An intermediate trainee, typically after two, maybe three years of really solid lifting, probably... 15 to 25 pounds of muscle gained you can definitely still be a beginner be a beginner after 10 years of training if you've just been training like an idiot the entire time you can still be susceptible to beginner gains but we're assuming that someone has been training Properly and under, you know, good coaching or good programming and like been pretty dialed in two or three years slash 15 to 25, maybe 30 pounds of muscle gained, which is really good. That's a, a lot of muscle to gain in the, your first few years of lifting, but it is possible. Once that kind of starts slowing down, that's when you're moving into your beginner stage or your intermediate stage. And uh, intermediate, in my opinion, in the way I kind of approach it, I think that it is appropriate to continue adding volume. Uh, sets per week as an intermediate till you get up to maybe the 18 to 20 to 22, potentially maybe 25 sets a week uh, for some people just kind of depends on the person. You want to start low so that you can always go up. You don't want to start too high. So you have to go back down once you stop making gains. I usually think that's a pretty good idea. And once you get to that advanced stage, a lot of people will say, once you're advanced, you just have to continue adding volume. And I disagree because when you're an advanced trainee, you've basically gained most of the muscle that's available to you. You've got great technique. You're super strong. And a set of an exercise results in a lot of fatigue. I think that it's a great option sometimes for a lot of people to dial back the volume and up the intensity. So you're training harder. You're training with closer proximity to failure, but you're doing fewer sets because you can just get so much more out of every set, out of every rep even. The main advantage to doing that is typically going to be longevity and just mental getting, getting jazzed up for eight to 10 sets in a training session is way easier and less stressful and less demanding, like just mentally and cognitively than getting jazzed up for 15 to 18 sets per session. Especially when you compound that over the entire week of training an entire month of training, entire year of training, that's a lot of mental bandwidth that is required getting to get, that jazzed up for all of the sets that you have to do. Whereas instead you can just do fewer sets, but take those sets a little bit harder, closer to failure, and you're going to probably get the same gains. Additionally, you're also less likely to typically, not, not always. There's definitely some nuance here, but typically you're less likely to experience as much joint pain if you're doing less volume. So, and it's also a shorter training session. You're not going to be in the gym for two hours, two and a half hours. So there's a lot of pros and cons to different types of volume. And it really just depends on the level of the trainee, what their preferences are. And finally, some people just respond well to high volume. Other people don't respond as well to high volume. Some people respond really, really well to low volume and super high intensity. Other people don't respond to that as well. So kind of just determining what type of person you are, where you're at with your lifting career and what you prefer, how much time you have, how hard you're capable of training safely. Those are all things that go into it and there's no like perfect answer. But if you are somewhere between, I would say on the very low end, if you're very advanced and super strong and you've gained most of the muscle available to you, if you're anywhere in the six to eight sets per week per muscle group range, maybe a little bit more for some smaller muscle groups that recover a little bit better, like the delts, biceps, calves, et cetera, you're you're probably doing enough. You could definitely do more, but you don't necessarily have to do more. It kind of just depends on how you're doing and how you're feeling and what you prefer. All the way up to if you are more intermediate or even if you are advanced, like I mentioned some advanced trainees, like lots of volume. If you're doing somewhere in the 20 to 25 sets per range, per muscle group, per week range, you are also probably just fine getting gains. Of course, if you're recovering well and doing the right things outside the gym. There have been studies where people do more sets than that per week, uh, but these studies have a lot of limitations and I usually don't really buy into them. I think they're interesting. There was a recent one where the end of the study, basically they progressively overloaded by adding volume, which I don't like to do. So they added sets per week throughout the program. And by the end, one of the groups was doing 52 sets per week. And that group happened to gain more muscle, but so many limitations with that. Definitely don't do 52 sets per week. Probably not a good idea at all. Definitely not a good idea at all. I wouldn't do that. But yeah, somewhere in that six to 20, 25 set range is probably pretty good. Next question. Could you have created and ran your business while active duty SF? How much could you have handled? Yeah. So I actually did create the business when I was still active duty. However, basically the premise of the business was just to gain a following and create content and help people with general fitness. I didn't talk at all, almost about actual SF prep, I didn't coach anybody. If you if you scroll back down my Instagram or if you go back to my older podcast episodes, you'll notice that most of the questions I answered and most of the content I made was just general fitness content. It wasn't until I actually got out where I started A taking clients and B making a lot more content focused on SF prep and selection prep, etc. So, although I created the business while I was active duty, I did not have like a fully running business. I sold some programs, but I didn't like make a living off it. I was just like basically a side business and it was what I did in my free time because I really enjoyed it. I had a couple clients before I got out, but like 5% of what I have right now. So I probably could have handled a little bit more clients, but I would not have been comfortable with it just because there are times in SF where you just have to go off the grid and you're unable to be contacted. And for my integrity and to just kind of like stick to my values and stick to my guns, I did not think that that was worth doing. And I didn't want to put anyone in a position where they signed up for coaching with me and they couldn't get in touch with me or whatever because I was out training somewhere and I just didn't have internet connection or it didn't have my phone. So I was unreachable. So I think it's great. A lot of people do start side businesses while they're active duty, especially now that there's like no real war going on, which... Could change in the future, but I think it's totally fine if you want to start some sort of business while you're active duty. Like, basically, it comes down to how you want to spend your downtime. If you want to spend your downtime relaxing with your family, whatever, that's awesome. And you definitely shouldn't feel like pressured into starting a business. But I found that most of my downtime, I was just spending like drinking and wasting time. And I was kind of sick of that. And I've always been passionate about fitness and I've always been a lifelong learner of human performance, physiology, fitness, health, nutrition, et cetera. So I figured I would start spending my free time doing that and kind of build the business without full intention on, you know, getting out soon after, but it ended up kind of taking off. And I ended up realizing I liked that more than what I was doing in the army at the time and figured it was time to move on. So I couldn't have handled much more than I did. I would say 90% of my free time uh, was spent building the business and focusing on the business. So it was definitely stressful. It was a lot. But at the same time, it wasn't as stressful just because, like I mentioned, I didn't have like clients that I needed to be, that, that were holding me accountable. So it was kind of just, I wasn't relying on it for income because I had income from the army. So it was just kind of a fun side business, which, you know, is totally fine to do if, if you are interested in something like that. Next question is cramping caused by a lack of electrolytes or too many electrolytes without enough water. So cramping is caused by lots of different things and electrolytes and hydration is definitely one of them, but there are tons and tons of different potential causes of cramping. One dehydration slash poor electrolyte balance, especially not enough salt. If you're cramping during activity, it's usually going to be a combination of salt and water. Like if you're on a long ruck or a long run and your hamstrings cramp or your quads cramp, it's probably a combination of hydration slash lack of hydration. And also just you don't have the fitness to be doing what you're doing at that level yet. So for example, I've cramped up when it's like really cold and I know for a fact that I'm not dehydrated, but I am rucking it in particular. It usually happened to me on rucks. I am rucking faster than what I train for, which, you know, if you are doing a timed ruck, you're probably going to be rucking faster than you did in training, which, you know, you you don't want to be setting PRs for like 12 mile rucks in a training ruck. You want to do that on the day that you're actually getting tested for it. But yeah, I've cramped up like pretty early on in a run or a ruck, and it definitely was not hydration related, but also I've cramped up on hotter runs and rucks, and it was definitely at least a combination of hydration and fitness. Temperature and heat, just internal core temperature because of the ambient temperature can also cause cramps. So you may be well hydrated, but you're just getting these crazy cramps. Those tend to happen, not always in the muscles that you're working. So like maybe you get like an abdominal cramp or a trap cramp or a neck cramp or something like that. That's typically a combination between dehydration and or uh, just overall body temperature. So if you are cramping up like if you're getting woken up in the middle of the night by a foot cramp, or if you are just sitting on the couch and you get a Charlie horse or something like that, potentially an electrolyte thing in most cases, if you have trouble cramping with cramping at night, like your foot cramps or your calf cramps or something like that, oftentimes it's after a hard training session. It's usually not just randomly, but in the hard training session that you did can definitely play a factor. But other things you can consider is your, just your electrolyte balance, having enough sodium. Also, magnesium is very important for uh, avoiding those. So if you take some magnesium before bed, it can help your muscles relax. And basically a cramp is when your muscle tenses up, but it doesn't have the ability to relax. So it just stays tenses up, tensed up and it can be very painful, but certain medications, certain health conditions, neurological conditions can lead to cramping, but really staying up to speed on your hydration, your sodium intake and your water intake and making sure that you are not deficient in magnesium and also just knowing that sometimes if you push shit really hard, especially a long ruck, like I was talking about earlier, sometimes you're just gonna cramp and a lot of times you can kind of just work your way through it. You might have to slow down a little bit. You might need to change your gait a little bit and figure it out, but the worst thing you can do and a lot of people do this is when they start cramping, they just start slamming water just nonstop. And usually it's just water without electrolytes. That will probably make your cramping worse and it can also be very dangerous. If you're just slamming regular water nonstop, you are further dehydrating yourself because you are diluting the electrolyte concentration in your body and it's not a good thing at all. So definitely be careful With that, some things like taking a shot of pickle juice or a shot of something spicy, they make like hot shots, I think they're called, where they're almost like runner goo packets, but they're like super spicy. They can help with cramps as well. Mustard can also help. If you are cramping up at selection, one little pro tip is to bring mustard packets with you and those can help as well. That basically is just a neurological thing. It like kind of tricks your body into relaxing. It's not because those things are doing, it's basically a very, very sharp, like sudden, hit of something spicy or bitter or whatever. And it kind of relaxes your nervous system and allows your muscles to not cramp. Apple cider vinegar is another one that works. Those are kind of like acute solutions to cramping. Like once in a while I used it when I was like really, really training hard and wasn't really keeping up to speed on my electrolyte slash water intake. I used to get like ab cramps just sitting on the couch and I would always go and take a shot of apple cider vinegar and it would kind of make it go away like not for good but at least temporarily because those things suck if you've ever ever had one so all things to consider but nobody is 100% certain on the exact cause of every cramp but those are some things that you can definitely uh, keep in mind next question what are the ruck and run times and individuals you should hit before going to sf selection so you should be able to run These are my numbers. These are not necessarily like the standard. You can be slower than these and still make it. But in order to give yourself the best possible chance, I think you should be able to hold seven minute miles for at least five miles. So a 35 minute five mile or faster. And I think you should be able to hold 12 minute or so rucking miles or faster. So that would be on a 12 mile ruck, that would be like two hours and 25 minutes. I think a 1230 pace would be two and a half hours on a 12 mile. So if you can hit like a solid amount, a few minutes under two and a half hours, you're in pretty solid condition, but that's kind of the minimum that I would go for if I were you. But also if you are about to go to selection tomorrow, for example, and you're a little bit slower than that, you should be okay. Just, you know, a little bit less peace of mind. Recommended ankle mobility movements to counteract destroying dorsiflexion from rucking. Yeah, so dorsiflexion is the ability to bring your, the tops of your feet up towards your shins, The opposite of that is plantar flexion when you're kind of pointing your toes down towards the ground and ankle mobility or lack thereof is very common in a lot of people. And because rucking involves a lot of anterior tibialis and calf and soleus and foot movement, but also it kind of like results in those areas getting a little bit tight and immobile. It can be pretty common to make your ankle mobility a little bit worse by doing a ton of rucking in absence of actual ankle mobility exercises. My favorite ankle mobility exercise, especially for dorsiflexion, is a calf raise. But you hold the bottom position of the calf raise of every single rep for at least three seconds, preferably like five seconds. And you also drive, you dorsiflex really hard. So when you're in that bottom position, not only are you letting the weight kind of stretch you out, and you're doing this on a deficit, by the way, you're not doing this on the ground. So you're getting into that stretch position where your heels are below your toes. Not only are you holding that, like the weight is going to kind of keep you there when you just hold it, like you're stretching your calf, but you're also going to drive your, the top of your feet up towards your shins on every rep. So if you're doing those three to five times per week, you don't have to go crazy heavy. Sometimes you can go heavy, especially if you want to like strengthen and build your calves. But if you're doing those often, you are not only obviously strengthening your calves and building your calf muscles and making your lower leg stronger and like more durable, which is very important for rucking, but you're also improving your ankle mobility. So I really like to use calf raises for all those things, not just because I have tiny calves and I want to get bigger calves. So definitely consider that most people, when they do calf raises, they just do bounce calf raises or they don't do them at all. But you really want to emphasize that stretch position and really you should feel the front of your leg, your anterior tibialis light up when you're at the bottom. Additionally, because you're working your calves, you also want to work your tibialis muscles. So ideally you have a tibialis raise machine or you can use a kettlebell or you can buy a tib bar and do them using one of those things. You're going to do the same thing in the bottom position when your feet are plantar flexed, so they're pointing down, you're going to really flex your calves. You might cramp up in your feet and/or your calves when you first start doing this, but you're holding that bottom position for a while where you really feel that stretch in your anterior tibialis, and you're like flexing, your plantar flexing, and then you bring it back up. That's every single rep. And I would try and match how much tib raise work you do with how much calf raise work you do, maybe not quite as much but at least like two thirds to three quarters, as much of calf raises as tip raises. So those two exercises right there are really all you need. You just gotta do them very consistently and you have to do them the way that I described. You can do other ankle mobility drills. You can hold the bottom of a squat, drive your knees out over your toes, et cetera. You can do the combat stretch, but I like the calf raise because you are just killing multiple birds with one stone. So definitely consider that. Nutrition and training up for SFAS. In SFAS, it's all MREs. Should you watch your nutrition now? Yes, you absolutely should eat in a way that will maximize performance and recovery when you are training for SFAS, even though you won't be able to do that while you're there. You don't need to start getting used to MREs. You don't need to like train off of just MREs, just like to practice that condition. That would be like practicing sleep deprivation because you're going to be sleep deprived there or, you know going and smashing yourself all week and then going out and rucking for 12 hours to to simulate the way you're going to feel during LANF. You want to focus on eating in a way that is going to maximize your performance as you prepare for selection. So if you are not focusing on your nutrition or if you're practicing eating MREs or if you are rucking in a depleted state intentionally all the time, or if you're doing like really crazy long fasts and trying to train during those fasts, just to try and imitate the conditions at selection, you're selling yourself short and you're not going to perform as well as you can in training. Therefore, you're not going to improve as much as you can before you go. The period of time before you go to selection should be spent building yourself up. You want to be as strong, fit, and capable as possible and fresh. You don't want to show up depleted. And if you don't focus on nutrition before you go, that's how you show up beat down, broken down, and depleted. And you're showing up to a course that is intended to break you down. So if you're already feeling broken down before you go, you're going to get way more broken down throughout. Whereas if you are built up and ready to get crushed, well-fed, well-nourished, well-rested, well-slept, and you just crushed a very intentional and sound training program and preparation, then you are going to have a lot more wiggle room when you do start getting broken down. So definitely fuel yourself in a way that is going to maximize performance and allow you to recover and get as good at rucking and running as you possibly can before you go, and you will show up much better suited in order to get selected. Next question, can making legs stronger improve run times? Yes, it absolutely can, to an extent. Once they have surpassed a requisite amount of strength, adding further strength, or especially adding muscle in combination with strength, which usually typically happens at the same time, will potentially not improve your run times. If you look at some of the best runners in the world, not talking about sprinters, longer distance runners, middle distance runners, et cetera, they don't have a lot of muscle mass. However, the ones that incorporate strength into their strength training, into their routine in order to run as best they can, are typically the ones that are the highest performing. So what that kind of means is once you are not necessarily struggling with your running because you're super, super weak, then you can kind of not have to worry about trying to add more and more and more strength. So basically there's a point of diminishing returns. And once you surpass that, you potentially can make yourself slower because the bigger and stronger your legs are, the more oxygen they're going to require to continue moving forward and continue running. So if your legs are really weak or if you are a runner, that is, if you if you have a history of doing a lot of running and maybe you struggle with like getting up to like a really solid finishing push, or maybe you struggle going up hills or something like that, and you just never really done any lifting, throwing lifting into your plan and strengthening your legs can be a huge, huge beneficial thing to do. That being said, if you have a history of lifting and running and you're already relatively strong and you are potentially not all that good at running, I would definitely focus more on improving your running than trying to get your legs stronger in hopes that it'll make you a better runner. I think that's probably the best way to look at it is like, you know, if you are squatting 315 and you're running 45 minute, five miles, getting stronger legs, increasing your squat is not going to make your five mile faster. Doing more running will make your five mile faster. But like, if you're the person I mentioned before, where you are running 26 minute, five miles and you are super duper weak, you can barely squat your body weight or you can't squat to parallel or something like that. You struggle going up, obviously 26 minute, five miles, crazy fast. But, you know, if you're a high-level runner or whatever, and you're trying to get a little bit faster and a little bit more durable and be a little bit less prone to injury, then doing some squats and improving your leg strength can be very beneficial. So, yes, it can, but most people don't necessarily need to get stronger legs in order to get better at running. Most people just need to work on their running and their endurance to improve their running. Next question, is it okay to lunge in knee sleeves to protect back knee when hitting the ground? Yeah, so this is something that's always just left me bewildered, watching people do lunges, reverse lunges, forward lunges, even split squats, where they just smash their back knee into the ground as hard as they can. First of all, your back knee doesn't even have to touch the ground. It's not like in order to do a full lunge, it's not like it has to touch the ground. Maybe if you're doing some sort of CrossFit competition, your lunge won't count unless the back knee hits the ground. And coincidentally, people I see doing this the most are CrossFit competitors. They just smash the back knee into the ground. They, it's almost can be used as a way to like gain a little bit of momentum out of the bottom because you're just kind of hitting off the ground and coming back up. Either way, it's not necessary, and you don't even have to touch the ground. If you do want to touch the ground, I would suggest – going a lot slower and really, really maybe focusing on like tapping the ground. What that will do is a make it so that you're not just subjecting your back knee to blunt force trauma every time you do a lunge, but B it'll also allow you to focus more on the most important part of the movement, which is when you're at the bottom, when your knee is out over your toes, if you're doing them for quads, if, or if you're, you're, you're basically leg is parallel and you're kind of bent over at the bottom position. If you're doing it for glutes, if you slow down and really control that portion of the lift, instead of kind of like bouncing out of it, you're going to a allow yourself to focus on the stretch position under load, which is the most important part of the lift for muscle growth in most movements. And B it's also going to keep your joints a little bit safer. You're just going to have less shearing force on your working knee. And obviously C it's going to allow you to not smash your back knee into the ground. Another option, which is my preferred option, is to do mostly reverse lunges. You can do walking lunges, not a huge deal. But when you do reverse lunges, you get the luxury of being able to step off of a deficit And that allows you to a get more range of motion. So you're getting a couple inches deeper, just depending on what type of deficit you use. I usually use a 45 pound bumper plate, sometimes a 45 plus a 25 and basically just my front foot is on that. So I'm stepping down onto the ground. So it's a couple extra inches of range of motion. So you put more of a stretch, you put your muscles through a longer range of motion, which is likely more effective at growing them. And strengthening them. B, it is making it so that even if you do go extra range of motion, even you don't even have to touch your knee to the ground and you're still going deeper than you would be on a regular lunge. And then doing it in reverse, the reverse lunges where you step backwards instead of forwards is for a lot of people, a lot less stressful on the knees. And in my opinion, it's a more effective exercise. So can you do lunges in knee sleeves? Yeah, you absolutely can. Do you have to? No. If you're doing them in knee sleeves for only that reason, then I would try one of the things I just mentioned instead of just smashing your back knee against the ground. Again, I just, it totally baffles me when I see people doing this because it's totally not necessary. And long-term, you probably don't want to smash your knee against the ground under load out of control for reps and reps and reps week after week, year after year, just probably not a great thing for your patella health or your kneecap health. So just worth considering. Next question, what is your standpoint on NSAIDs for acute injury recovery? So an NSAID is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. So ibuprofen is the most common one, Advil, whatever type of ibuprofen that you are most familiar with. The downside to, well, there's a few downsides to taking NSAIDs, especially in the context, there's even more downsides when taking it in this context as a trainee who is trying to recover from training. NSAIDs are, as it says in the name, they're anti-inflammatory, so they blunt the inflammation process. Part of healing, a very, very important part of healing, is the inflammatory process. So although an NSAID will reduce the inflammation, therefore making it a little bit less painful, maybe improving your range of motion, maybe reducing the swelling a little bit temporarily, of course, like in in for short periods of time while the NSAID is actually acting in your body. That is a very important part of the healing process and getting better in the future. So if you use NSAIDs, it is basically you're sacrificing a little bit of long-term recovery and health for very short-term immediate performance. And I am not a huge fan of that. Additionally, NSAIDs can be rough on the kidneys. They can be rough on the stomach, especially if you don't take them with food, or if you take them too often. I know plenty of green berets that used to take 800 milligram ibuprofens, which is the equivalent of four Advil, like two or three times per day, like every day, because they were always just in pain. So what that does is a) it wreaks havoc on your insides, your stomach, your kidneys, et cetera. B) It makes it so that your body's inflammation process gets so used to getting a NSAID on board that it doesn't carry out its inflammatory process and its healing as well as it otherwise would. So that's not smart at all. Can you use NSAIDs occasionally for acute injuries where you want to perform and you want to bring down the swelling and you want to temporarily feel better? Yes. However, for most people, I would recommend using something like acetaminophen or Tylenol. Again, I'm not a doctor, but this is like pretty basic stuff. Although a lot of people think Tylenol or acetaminophen is an NSAID, it's not. Tylenol is an antipyretic, which is a fever reducer, and it's also a pain reliever. So what it doesn't do, unlike NSAIDs, is that it does not reduce inflammation. So it allows your body's inflammatory process to continue, and it allows for you to potentially heal long-term faster, but it kind of blocks out the pain. So at least you can still perform, but you're not affecting your potential long-term recovery. It's also not as rough on the stomach or the kidneys. It can be rough on the liver if you take too much of it or if you take it too often. So these are very like... You should use these with a lot of caution and care, and you shouldn't just pop them like candy, like some people do. And also, if you're always getting to a place from training or from whatever you're doing where you need NSAIDs or you need pain relief, you definitely are doing something wrong. Like, you shouldn't need these. Once in a while, an acute injury, shit happens, get it. But if you are in a situation where you need them all the time, you are just overly inflamed, your body is overly overly inflamed, or you're training very unfavorably, or you're training too much, or you're using terrible form, or any number of things that can cause all these things to happen. So you want to really get to where your body is not in a systemically inflamed state. So that could be your diet. Even a lot of people eat a very inflammatory diet. They have really bad gut health and they're just always sore and banged up and hurting. And they also typically Don't train very intelligently. So, can you use NSAIDs once in a while? Totally fine. Should you rely on them? No. Is there a better option in most cases? Yes, that better option is acetaminophen. But your goal should be to reduce or mitigate the number of instances where you actually need something like that by improving your diet, improving your lifestyle, improving the way you train, and being more reasonable with it. So, that's my take on NSAIDs. Next question. If I do all my aerobic base building in zone three instead of zone two, am I screwed or is that all right? Good question. I haven't talked about this in a while. The main difference that is going to lead to the answer to this question is that zone three is more recovery intensive. It requires more recovery time. It recovers more recovery reserves, and it is just a more fatiguing way to train than staying in zone two. If you're doing most of your training in zone two and a little bit in zone three, or if you do a long zone two run in like six minutes of it, you are venturing into zone three briefly, not a huge deal. If you're running once or twice a week just for health and you're recovering well otherwise, it's okay to do it in zone three. There are times also where zone three going into zone three intentionally is fine as well. If you're training for a longer run, like a half marathon or a marathon, a lot of that run you're going to spend in zone three because you can't cross over your, basically zone three is your last zone before you cross your lactate threshold or you reach your lactate threshold. And that can only be held for a certain amount of time. So zone three for a lot of people is race pace. If they're running longer, if you're doing shorter runs, two to five mile runs, you're going to be at your lactate threshold basically the whole time. So zone three becomes less important. But either way, the adaptations that you get, the aerobic adaptations that you get in zone two versus zone three are almost the same. And because zone three is harder to recover from and more, recovery resource intensive. If all of your zone three or all of your base building runs are in zone three instead of zone two, you are A, not gonna be able to do as much of it because you're going to not be able to recover from it as well. And the main magic of aerobic base building is the duration at which you spend time in those zones. You're gonna be selling yourself short because you're not gonna be able to just continue adding mileage and adding duration week to week. B, you're probably not going to be recovering from your other training as well. This is assuming that you're not just running. If you're also lifting and doing other forms of conditioning, maybe rucking, and all your zone two stuff is in zone three, then you're probably not going to recover as well from that. That being said, if you are making progress and if you are recovering well, and if you are otherwise dialed in and you're not running lots and lots and lots of miles per week, being in zone three a little bit, not a huge deal but intentionally replacing zone two with zone three in an effort to like expedite the process is looking for a shortcut, but that shortcut ends up being a longer route because you're more susceptible to injury, overtraining, poor recovery, poor performance, and you're just not going to be able to do as much of it and recover from as much of it. And it's going to be more of a stressful training modality than zone two will be. So I highly suggest staying in zone two when you are doing a zone two run, being okay with periodically crossing into zone three for short periods of time, but also just focusing mostly on zone two. The reason most people do this is ego. They look down at their watch and they see they're in zone two, but they're not happy with the pace. Okay, cool, I'm at 140 heart rate, but my pace is like 12, 13 minute per mile, or I have to walk periodically in order to stay in zone two. And because their ego does not, appreciate that. And they don't want to just stick to the plan or they saw someone else run faster in zone two. They saw somebody else's zone two pace, something like that. They say, ah, screw it. Zone three, I'm still going to build my aerobic base, but I'm a little bit happier with the pace. I'm not as ashamed of how slow I'm running. So they say, screw it. I'm going to run in all zone three. That is the main reason most people do zone three running because it is a little bit of a humbling experience when you first start running and your zone two pace is super slow and you're not happy with it. And you also make gains kind of slowly. It's not like this like super fast, rapid gain process where you're knocking a minute off your zone two pace every week and having the discipline to trust the process, stay in zone two for the majority of your training sessions is something that is a good idea to build just in general. Having a disciplined approach to training doesn't necessarily mean like always training balls to the wall, always training as hard as you can, always just going one more mile or always going as fast as possible. A disciplined approach to training could be could mean, hey, instead of being in zone three today, I'm gonna dial it back and be in zone two because I'm supposed to be in zone two and I'm gonna recover from it better. I'm gonna be able to do more of it. I'm going to continue to improve my running because I am sticking to the plan instead of just going by ego and being like, no, I'm not happy with that pace. I'm going to go faster. Screw it. So definitely discipline yourself to stay in zone two as best. You can be okay with occasionally crossing into zone three. If you are training for a half marathon marathon, et cetera, some of your runs might intentionally be in zone three, but I highly doubt the person asking this is asking for that reason. So those are some things to consider if you want to continue to train and build your volume and build your mileage and actually recover from it and feel good and not hurt yourself. Next question. One week before SFAS, some easy runs and rucks beneficial or better to rest completely and do mobility. A couple things here. One, you don't want to rest completely. Tapering is very individual. It really just depends on the fitness level of the person you're tapering for a three week event. You're not just tapering for one day. A taper shouldn't just be like you get three days out, and then you just take three days off and do a bunch of mobility and hope you're good. Basically going into a taper, you wanna finish with your hardest week of training. Most most cases you wanna finish with your hardest week of training and then start a taper. Typically the running during your taper should be mostly easy with a little bit of speed, not like a full on speed interval session or a tempo run or a fart lick or anything like that, but you do want to continue to keep your body accustomed to running at say your goal two mile, somewhere between your goal two mile and and five mile pace. Speed is the adaptation that goes the fastest when we stop training it. Endurance sticks around for a really long time. So you theoretically could just take two weeks off before you go to selection and you would not lose endurance, but you would lose a little bit of speed and you would lose a little bit of running skill just because it would be kind of a foreign activity to you when you get to SFAS. So you wanna still run a little bit. You wanna potentially ruck a little bit at least wear a ruck on around throughout the house or whatever in the week leading up to it, but you want to do it at a much lower volume and the speed that you do should be very low intensity. So maybe that last week you do a couple of runs and you spend out of the entire week, 15 to 25 minutes total in three runs at your goal five mile pace, for example. So maybe you do a 30 minute run one day, and out of that 30 minute run, maybe you speed up to your goal five mile pace three to five times, and you hold it for 90 seconds to two minutes, maybe three minutes. Or maybe you do like a short tempo run, or you do a few little like very short fartlek runs with way more slow than fast, just to keep up your speed and not lose too much of it. But you want your volume, intensity, everything to be a lot lower than it was during your train up. You want to allow your joints to recover. You want to allow your nervous system to recover. You want to really focus on sleep, fuel, getting your mind right. And you want to show up very, very fresh and ready to go. So that's kind of a general guideline for tapering. It doesn't have to be the exact same for everybody. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know, As long as you're dialing it back for seven to 21 days before you go to selection, depending on the person. Again, uh, you're going to be doing pretty well. As far as mobility, be careful with mobility, not because mobility is bad, but a lot of people, when they taper or when they rest up for something, they start introducing a shit ton more mobility than they've been doing the entire time. So basically they've been training super hard, doing a lot of rucks, runs, lifts, a little bit of mobility, just, you know, staying mobile on the areas that they struggle with shoulders, ankles, hips, whatever it may be. And then they start their taper their last week or two weeks before they go to selection and they crank up the mobility and they're just spending hours doing mobility or foam rolling or whatever it may be throughout the day. And that when you're not used to that and you start doing all this crazy mobility, a, you're not really helping as long as your mobility is sufficient to do basic movement patterns and, you know, reach overhead and bend over and get into a squat, et cetera. As long as that is sufficient, mobility is not going to like miraculously help you recover. It's not going to like take all your joint pain away. It's not going to make it so that you're like in tip top shape, especially when you're not used to it. It's probably going to make things potentially worse, especially when people, for mobility, most of the mobility they do is like static stretching and like increasing their flexibility, which is different than mobility. Uh, You can run into some problems. So definitely be reasonable with mobility. If you're determining whether you should just relax and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a glass of milk and go to bed or go do 30, 45, 60 minutes of mobility, in hopes that that's going to help your recovery more choose option a just eat a sandwich drink some milk go to bed rest up and do that day after day during your taper and you're going to show up a lot more primed to perform for selection and you're going to be a lot less susceptible to injury than if you just crank up the mobility and do a bunch of new stuff that you're not used to so be reasonable with it. And dial it back. You want to show up very fresh, motivated, ready to go. And we'll end it there. That's the last question I'm going to answer today. Thank you guys very much for listening. I'll be back soon with another episode. Till then, Terminator out. Thank you for listening. If you like this show and want to start crushing your goals, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And for more fitness content, follow me on Instagram at Terminator underscore training or check out my website, TerminatorTraining.com. All right, guys, Terminator out.